Welcome to this episode of the Africa Business of Sport podcast, a continuation of our World Cup series that we've been doing over the past few weeks, where we look at the sport business aspects of what it takes to host and deliver a successful FIFA World Cup. Today, we'll be speaking about the broadcasting and televising of the FIFA World Cup, which is almost a continuation of our conversation in episode nine, where we spoke about the broadcasting and televising history of the FIFA World Cup in the brilliant book, The Business of the FIFA World Cup. Today, we have the author of that chapter, Broadcasting and the FIFA World Cup, Privatization and Technology. It's our pleasure to have on the Africa Business Sport Podcast, Dr. Gerard Akines. Gerard, thank you so much for making the time this morning, and it's great to have you on the Africa Business Sport Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Firstly, for those who may not know you, could you just give us a brief background of your career and the sorts of work that you are involved in? I'm originally from Benin, where I played basketball. I went to school there, part of my schooling, uh, till... Uh, secondary school, and then I moved to Togo, and then Cote d'Ivoire, where I played basketball, moved to Belgium, where I coached basketball mostly because I couldn't play because of all the citizenship regulations. And uh, from uh, Belgium, I went to the U.S., uh, where I really started my uh, academic career with, uh, with sport. I did sport administration. And then my PhD was in media studies with a focus on uh, on sports. And for the past eight years, I've been in Qatar. I work for the World Cup uh, uh, Legacy Program, the Jusu Institute, for six years. And uh, for the past two years, I've been more a freelance uh, instructor, adjunct instructor at uh, Northwestern University in Qatar. I met in Khalifa University in Qatar and uh, New York University in the U.S. I teach uh, classes here and there, and I do some research, and uh, I also support some organizations in uh, uh, sport management when requested. That's a very short summary of uh, my journey. Wow, that's that's quite a resume there. I mean, you clearly are very well informed and educated but also well traveled and i think you'll bring a lot of value to this conversation that we're going to have today which is specifically about the broadcasting and the fifa World cup from and based on the chapter the brilliant chapter if i can say in the book that you um, contributed to the business of the fifa world cup i think we could start very early on in the early years of the fifa world cup and television which was fascinating when Inam and I were speaking about this and when we were reading it ourselves, just to know that without the live broadcasting in the very early years of the World Cup, games were recorded and then shown in films weeks or months later, which is incredible to think about um, in this generation that we're living in at the moment. What was the value of television and really broadcasting the World Cup in that way at the time? And how has it evolved in the 1938 World Cup and the World Cups that followed? Well, the value was, uh, the economic value was, um, was zero. Uh, watching the World Cup was attending the World Cup. Uh, watching some footages sent through, I don't know, but, uh, mail it, they would mail it, they would ship it. And it was essentially between uh, South America and Europe because uh, they were the two main, uh, World Cup organizer, World Cup participants. 
and live broadcasting wasn't part of the discussion at all because of technology. Uh, at that time, television was still black and white. It was terrestrial uh, television. Uh, radio was the main uh, way of uh, following the World Cup shortwave. Uh, looking at footages was uh, first very few cameras, black and white. Uh, and uh, you get it later in Europe, they will get it earlier. But the rest of the world, you get some footages. I remember growing up in Benin, where we would watch uh, the World Cup, even till the 70s. I think the World Cup was still shipped to uh, African countries as a uh, tapes that were shown in uh, movie theaters. Then you watch summaries of the World Cup. That was the early, early years, till the technology evolved. Uh, and uh, it evolved, I think, uh, from terrestrial, Europeans started showing the games uh, uh, within Europe. It couldn't cross ocean. Everything was cabled. Then you couldn't, uh, from the, the game itself to TV stations uh, or TV or household TV, and everything was cable and antenna for some time till it evolved uh, and evolved, uh, I think, in the early 60s. Uh, it started, you started seeing signs of transformation through the technology and signing a, then the value started coming in because I think, the, if I remember, the first uh, World Cup with some broadcasting right was uh, in England. I think satellite was coming up, uh, and uh, in England, it was uh, the, the broadcasting rights were very low. That's how it, it, things evolved, and uh, yeah, that's technology is instrumental in the way television and the World Cup will uh, collaborate and become a business and become today the, the biggest revenue generator. Uh, media for for FIFA, mostly for FIFA because FIFA is the organization that really organizes the World Cup, and also that the organization that's going to uh, cash the, the revenues of uh, broadcasting because they're the owner. They are the owner of the World Cup. With the 1958 World Cup in Sweden, in particular. You mentioned the chapter that that was, you know, the World Cup that really, truly established commercial value for television broadcasting. What were the factors that made it that way in terms of broadcasting companies like BBC and the EBU now being able and willing to pay money? Was it the, again, as you keep mentioning, the evolution of technology or the other factors that made that specific World Cup a example or a model for how broadcasting can be actually commercialized by organizations especially fifa no i think uh, technology would uh, enable that once you could watch the game live and even if it was within europe within a few countries it was just a few countries the game were live then you have an audience and uh the concept of showing the game live and giving value to the game because it has a cost to broadcast uh, a, a game. 
and I think FIFA was just thinking about offsetting the cost of broadcasting the game. They were not thinking much about uh, commercializing the World Cup. The commercialization of the World Cup it is also is not just about broadcasting. The notion of commercialization came out of a transformation of FIFA from where where it was in the before the seventies when the Brazilian took over FIFA. That really were a major shift in the way FIFA operates and commercialized itself and the World Cup happened. Uh, in 58, it was mostly, yes, we, we can now reach a few countries with uh, the game through terrestrial uh, television. There's a cost attached to it. Uh, otherwise, it was almost free free to, to watch at that time, even if I didn't experience that, but that's what uh, the literature said. It's truly fascinating. And for me, it was very important to see that some organization, FIFA was able to really and truly globalize their tournaments and allow people around the world, especially from the African and Asian region, to be able to watch the games live like people in Europe and in South America and in the Americas were benefiting from. Looking at the current broadcasting phase that we see around us, the current media rights licenses for big tournaments like the Premier League, the La Liga, the UEFA Champions League, the Women's Champions League, the World Cup and the AFCON. What is your take on the current innovations and future innovations that will come through, especially looking at the new generation and current generation of fans who do not interact with sports plainly from a sitting behind the TV watching a 90-minute game point of view, but come up with content that they both create and enjoy during the broadcasting of games. I'll, I'll go back a little bit to mention the, the major shift really in commercialization of television. It was to be able to broadcast the game globally. And what allowed that live and it is satellite television, satellite technology. Well, suddenly we we could cross ocean. We don't have cap we don't need cables. And the game will come to you in your house. They call it direct to home uh television. And that was a major shift. And what it means is we can cover the, the, the planet and everybody can sit somewhere with a television, with an antenna initially and later with uh, uh, a dish to watch the game, whatever you sit. And that shift happened in, started happening in the 70s and evolved in 90s, late 80s and 90s was really the major transformation of the mediascape globally. But the access to satellite is not that democratic yet. It wasn't, you still have to pay for it. Uh, there were a lot of uh, constraints and not everybody had access to it, but it was available. And then what is transforming the, the broadcasting again is the digitalization of broadcasting. Is digital television, terrestrial television, what make digital content much easier. And then what we observe today, it is the internet streaming. And that is transforming the game, it's transforming the access. 
we don't know where this is going yet, but it's transforming the access. And when we look at the package, media package for FIFA World Cup today, we have radio, we have the internet, we have television, and then we have uh, phones. Means that we have four different ways of selling rights. Is four different packages without talking about the regional and all these dimensions. And the consumption through the internet uh, and the phone, because the phones live on, uh, on broadband as well, on uh, 4G, 5G, it's helping some aspect of the uh, dissemination of the game. You can watch the game almost on any device today. Uh, on, on uh, the World Cup on any device, television, phone, tablet. And is it more democratic? At some extent, yes. For the countries where smartphones uh, penetration is deep, where internet penetration is deep and affordable. In Africa, it's still a challenge for us because the technology that allows and carries the game is not always affordable to the majority of the population, even if they love football, and is not always available because of the way broadcasting rights are distributed across the continent today because of privatization. And these are the challenges. Otherwise, with internet, satellite television, and the ability to, to stream, the World Cup became more accessible to individuals globally, and uh, how it's going to generate revenues is just giving more ways to generate revenues because streaming is sold differently from uh, television, radio, satellite. These are the, the, the major media outlet to, that I use to watch the game or to listen to the game today. To take a step back, uh, Gerard, and speak about the players in the mm -hmm. very early early stages of the commercialization of broadcasting rights in the FIFA World Cup, the European Broadcasting Union paid about eight hundred thousand dollars for the nineteen sixty six FIFA World Cup, and that was a radical increase from only seventy five thousand dollars for the Chile World Cup four years before. And you say here in the chapter that it was the wider audience and the live broadcasting that justified that radical increase, and I suppose that builds on to the fact that Telstar Satellite, which is something that you've referenced as you've been speaking, was a huge player, was a huge factor in being able to broadcast the FIFA World Cup globally. With the EBU in particular, just what is the role and the history that they have in making the World Cup a broadcasting, telev a broadcasting television phenomenon, really? because they were the first company or one of the first companies rather to really invest heavily in the broadcasting of the games. Yes, the EBU is like uh, the media or the, or the broadcasting branch of the EU, the European Union, is a different uh, organization. But uh, what the EBU has, uh, it is the large audience because it's a European organization, then it, it mutualizes the uh, audience and also resources and because of the technology allows them now to show the games across all their members automatically you have a broader audience once you have a broad audience there is a potential for commercialization and the mechanics of commercialization it is uh 
commercials during before the game, during the game, halftime, and after the game. Then it gives the opportunity to all the broadcasters, which were in majority at that time, public uh, broadcasters. They belong to government. And, they, and the game and is still in uh, EBU and European Union law rules. Some games are public goods. They cannot be shown on pay TV. Even, even if they are on pay TV, they have to be free to air. It means that you don't have to pay, you don't have to have a subscription to watch it. That's what the EU did. And that's what the EBU tries to do. They consider the World Cup a public good for the populations and they invest in getting the right. They lost it at some point, I don't remember, in the 80s or, or, or 90s, but they got it back again because of the numbers and the government willing to spend to get the right to keep national team games at least available free to air out of the commercialization space for watching uh, in terms of watching. That's what the EBU did. And what the African Union of Broadcasting is not capable of doing for many reasons because of the state ability to first get together and pay some substantial money to outbid the private uh, uh, bidders today, African Union of Broadcasting cannot achieve what the European Union, uh, European Broadcasting Union achieved for long and still doing it today. This is a, a transformation. The commercialization relies on audience. Audience has to be sizable, big enough, and then it's worth paying a lot of money to get the right and generate uh, revenue out of uh, everything you can do around showing the game. For private television, it's subscription. Subscription is one of the first uh, revenue stream and then commercials during the game, after the game or before the games. But for public broadcasting, it is essentially what they can generate before the game with commercials during the game and after. That's how it works. Before you jump in there, Edom, isn't it mm -hmm. supposed to be that Africa then with a very young population and a growing population over the next few decades, we are clearly going to have a huge sports audience. So does that mean that the value of broadcasting rights and the broadcasting rights to the FIFA World Cup and all other different sports properties and tournaments are definitely going to increase over the next few years in line with the population increases that we're going to see in Africa over the next few decades? It's, that should be uh, automatic, but it's not. And it is not because of uh, the economics of Africa. Uh, the population is not enough to justify the cost. We have a young population, but a young population is also a, a mostly unemployed population. We have a big component of our population that is unemployed. We have a big component of the population with some uh, who are entrepreneurs, survival entrepreneurs. What means that they don't have resources, they don't have disposable income to consume entertainment that much. Then, because of uh, the privatization of broadcasting on the continent, a large component of uh, that population won't be able to afford a pay TV to watch the game. They won't be able to afford on their phones data to watch the games. 
these are the challenges Africa have. And we, although we have a large population globally in terms of uh, numbers, our economics is not very conducive to generate massive income out of the continent. And the only people who, or the only institution that allow us today to watch the World Cup is government. If government doesn't step in to pay the rights from the private entity that I think is a Togolese uh, organization that bought the rights for the World Cup in Africa. When I say Africa is mostly non, so uh, is excluding so, uh, South Africa and North Africa. South Africa will have super sport and super sport is pay TV. Uh, the French part will have Canal Plus, it's pay TV. And in the Northern part, we have uh, Bean Sport, it's pay TV. If government don't come to get some of these games, on free-to-air television, our young population doesn't have access to, to the games. They can only go to places where one person buy the subscription and watch it collectively. That is the way we, we manage to, to watch the games. Otherwise, the economic situation of the, of the continent doesn't give us the capacity to develop a very commercialized uh, broadcasting space. Like, we can see it with our own leagues, own competitions. We can't afford broadcasting right because there's no audience. There's other factors uh, to that. But we cannot uh, dismiss the economic environment with, which determine everything else. Today, the World Cup, FIFA makes more money in Europe because of the capacity of Europeans to spend money and to generate revenue out of the World Cup, they, they write. They will spend, uh, they make money in the US. Same thing, economic situation. And then we go through uh, Asia, India, uh, China. But Africa is still economically, I'm not talking about numbers, we are still economically on the periphery in terms of a continent that really spend money on broadcasting. That's why uh, if we don't have a more, a better strategy first to acquire rights in the more collective way, uh, we just want to buy into the commercial aspect, we spend a lot of money and we cannot give it to our people. Then we need to collectively be a bit stronger like the European uh, Broadcasting Union does. And ensure that the World Cup and the African Cup of Nations remain in the public space available free to air. I don't know if it's going to happen because you are moving away from that model to the commercialization, commercialized part. And for me, uh, it's, not a, it's maybe good for organizations that generate revenue out of it, but for our people, I'm not sure if it's the best way to go. We need to reinforce the ability to make some of this competition available to a, a large population. And then African youth can enjoy those events and embrace sport uh, as well. For every hurdle, there's a potential solution to fixing the problem. Here in Africa, we do know that there is a huge problem to accessing high quality broadcasting, especially that as you just mentioned. But what comes to me is that there are potential alternatives that we can explore, which is actually already being utilized 
widely here. We see through our political campaigns and our elections that a lot of people are tuned into their radio, number one. Number two, betting companies have a very huge stake on the continent as a lot of young people enjoy the kind of bundles that they get on either Sporty Bet or Betway or One X Bet. What comes to mind now is that how can we leverage these two to bring in innovations for young people? What comes to mind extra is that a potential solution can be that Sporty, Betway, One X Bet, and the other betting companies can come together and say, we're going to provide a radio broadcasting space for young Africans and then create a bundle or a partnership that, that says that since we as Betway, we are providing for you, we are going to give you the young people greater access to more betting activations, which will then make it so that when I go on the Sporty app or when I go on the Betway app, I can listen to a live stream game via radio while betting. If you should have this potentially available to a wide range of young Africans, they will then be able to access games without worrying about sitting behind a TV to watch a game, but they can have it on the go whilst betting. I believe that such a partnership between betting companies can really and truly bring to us what we wouldn't get normally from Super Sports or from Canal Plus or from being sports. Then again, one would ask, what is the essence of bringing this in terms of benefits for a company like Betway or Sporty Bet. With Africa, should you be able to make profits, you need to go the long-term route where you provide the service first for a very long time. Whilst people get attached to it, then you bring in new innovations. I have been privileged to be watching DSTV for a very long time and I've seen the growth journey that DSTV has gone through. If companies like Betway, um Sporty Bet, One X Bet can utilize the same approach and provide radio broadcasting for the whole of Africa. I can personally say that it will change the, the landscape on the continent and bring more access to sporting events. For instance, I would love to be able to hear a Champions League final on my radio. I would love to be able to hear an AFCON final on my radio. And if Betway, Sporty Bet, One X Bet can bring this to me, I'll be more inclined to bet regularly and be part of that innovation. Dr. Akindis, what is your take on this? Uh, this is a tough question. Huh? You know, betting, it is a very ambivalent space. Okay, I'm going to leave the betting aside. I'm going to talk about uh, radio. Uh, radio, we lived sport through radio for decades. And it's still there. It's still there. And radio still plays a, a big role on across the continent. And I don't think we need more, much more to keep radio on. Because radio is a very affordable media today with all the technology. We don't need much to keep radio on. Of course, you still have to buy the rights for, for radio. And it's much cheaper than the right for TV. And what I think... If you want to stay in the radio world, it is to same thing is to make sure we get the right to get radio and we get the right to make the radio totally free to air to everybody who can access uh, a radio, can access it on their phone. There are many ways you can access radio. And 
ensure that every competition retain radio as one of the media uh, outlets. That's something we need to be concerned. We, we, we should do systematically. Uh, betting can come as a support to get the right to improve the, the, the broadcasting, to get better broadcasters. But do they have to? It, ought, it, it depends if they want to, if they see as a, a commercial opportunity for those companies, they will do it. Otherwise, they won't do it. And the risk also uh, with uh, using betting, we always have to be careful about the damage gambling can do to people or to families. And when we talk about betting, we always need to keep the ethical uh, question on the table. We're embracing it because it's been around. It's, very, it's a very complex topic. No matter how it is regulated, uh, people bet, people gamble. It is part of human being uh, uh, made. We, gamblers have been around forever and human beings will always gamble. But we need to make sure that it is not totally uh, open. It has a level of regulation. And then the uh, collaboration between betting companies and sport companies and media companies can work. But before we, we go to radio uh, or after radio, what is taking on more and more, it is what uh, over the top. Basically, it is uh, on-demand streaming of events, and that it is what is allowing FIFA also to have internet right. And we can do that. Of course, our internet infrastructure needs major improvement, but because of the cost of internet uh, for of streaming, we can do it. We can do it at a much lower cost than TV broadcasting, which is a very, very costly uh, venture. And I think what we always have to think, even if you want to think commercial, we have to think doing it as a wider platform. Can Africa build a strong internet platform for sports? What allows any event to be streamed? Can we do that? Can we do it uh, as a with all the stakeholders, which governments and private entities, technology companies? Because we always have to think about the economic return for our people, uh, not just consuming. Because just consuming, when we are watching the Premier League, we are watching uh, uh, La Liga. This is marginal economic return for on the continent. It's very marginal. The main return happens with the rights those uh, leagues, those leagues get from African broadcasters paying for to acquire the rights. That's where the money is. Ourselves, we are just spending. And we don't control or we don't generate any economic activity of very limited economic activity by watching the Premier League. And if we want to do anything, we always have to think how, what are we, we are, we'll be doing, will be rooted in our society such a way that if there's any, any economic return is within our society. Most of the betting companies here again are not our betting companies. 
then what we pay, the big amount of the money we pay, doesn't generate impact locally or regionally or continentally. The added value goes away. And we have to think more in that sense. We need to take time to build what generates value, what generates uh, economic impact to our economies, and less what will allow us to consume when most of the resources we used to consume will be moving away from us. That's, that's how uh, uh, we need to start thinking more and more. We don't have any sport platform. We don't have on the continent. There are a few things here and there. I know Ashanti Kotoko uses SIC. SIC is a US or UK organization, uh, most of them. What prevents us to develop local platform or continent or regional platforms to show, to stream what we do? This is where we, we need to, to start thinking more and more, not just start thinking about business as consumption for us, but value added for others. Otherwise, the impact, how sport, how broadcasting, how streaming, how radio is going to support our people will be limited. It will have some impact, but it will be limited. Now, am I making sense? A lot of sense. Uh, I mean, I can hands down you're a guru in this. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Too humble to admit I'm... it. <laughs> Too humble <laughs> to admit it. That's I'm a, a student that, of this. That's a, that's an exceptional description of just the broadcasting space in Africa. And I couldn't be more grateful that you actually went to elaborate on that point, uh, Gerard. Just finally, when we look at the value of broadcasting rights, specifically with the FIFA World Cup, going into the billions, and we look ahead to the 2026 World Cup in the US, Canada, and Mexico, and also to the 2030 World Cup, which is still determined where it's going to be hosted. What is the value of broadcasting rights going to do, in your opinion? Are we still going to see an upward trend where it's going into the billions every single year? We see Premier League broadcasting rights going up, UEFA Champions League broadcasting rights going up. Is this the trend that is going to continue? What's your view on broadcasting rights, in particular with the World Cup and how they could possibly grow in the future? I, I don't have any uh, magic. I'm from Benin, but I don't have any Vodun ability. <laughs> but uh, uh, what I can say, the Mexico-Canada-US World Cup is a is is a new World Cup because we have forty eight teams. Then for sure, the broadcasting rights is going to skyrocket because the supply of matches is drastically increasing, and with the supply of matches, it is also the number of teams. Is also the number of nations that will be involved in those in this competition. And in every nation involved, there's a potential of growth of uh, audience in all these nations. And the growth of audience means higher value for broadcasting right, or streaming right, radio right, of internet, of, uh, of, uh, or, or phone right. And all these, for sure, we will have 
a, a major increase, I think, in broadcasting rights. We're most likely going to see more uh, internet big companies involved is in the US. We have uh, two major players that are entering increasingly the sport world for live broadcasting. One is already in it strongly. It, uh, it is Amazon with Prime. They own some one night of NFL games. Uh, they own the French Premier League, right? What means streaming is becoming a norm for the main right holder. Are we going to see it in the US? I'm not sure yet. Because uh, if you look at, I think it's uh, Fox Sport that owns the right for the World Cup in the US. But the big, these big broadcasters, these big media companies, they buy the package. They get the right, radio, internet, everything together. Or they, they only want they may live alone is radio. Such a way that there's no competition for others to buy it. Prime TV and Prime uh, Amazon Prime only has the streaming capacity. But Fox will have streaming, internet, and phones. Then the change, I'm not sure if it's going to happen because those with the capacity, the 360 capacity, will capture the right. Uh, we won't see maybe some other places of, in the world where uh, they, are not, they are not strong broadcasters capable of buying TV, uh, internet, and uh, and, ra and radio and phones, we will see just streaming as a broadcasting owner of right owner for the next World Cup. My prediction is drastic increase in broadcasting right value or, or amount. And then second, it is a stronger presence of uh, over the top uh, companies like uh, Amazon Prime, maybe Meta, Facebook, and uh, a few others that are going to enter that space either at a larger scale geographically or in a niche market geographically to offer the games and the niche market is probably going to evolve more and more where there's no major broadcaster holding the right and then uh the they call it d-zone a, a sports streaming company that is has the ambition to become global, they are probably going to slowly enter that space to capture the niche market in terms of streaming. We will see more and more of that. And then we see a radical increase in uh, broadcasting right globally for FIFA benefit. Gerard, it's been truly remarkable having a conversation with you of broadcasting across the world, especially in sports, in the FIFA World Cup and in other top leagues and how that can be leveraged for Africa and the way forward. I'm very grateful. I know Jabu is very grateful as well. Continue to enjoy the World Cup, and then we'll speak soon. I'm very grateful to you too, Adam and Jabu. Thanks for inviting me. It's be a great pleasure to be chatting with you, discussing with you, uh, or lecturing. I don't like that, but it happens to I do that often. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you. Thank Thanks you. a lot, Gerard. Yes, <laughs> if you need me anytime, my role 
is to support all those initiatives you guys are working hard to get something done. We are all together and I'll give you support I can.